0: Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq al and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We are streaming at www.wcev1450.com, so we can be we can reach everywhere. Now, if you're new to the Radio Slime family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We broadcast every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central right here from the beautiful city of Chicago, Illinois. And you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can also find our podcast uh, where you can check out all of those episodes that you may have missed or you might want to revisit. And you can find us at Radio Islam USA. So that's wherever you get your podcast. If you get them on TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play or SoundCloud, you will find us where? That's right. At Radio Islam USA. All right. We're uh, coming into a, a great time of year. Uh, it's starting to get warm here. Lots of sunshine out. It's beautiful. I'm just enjoying this uh, this background track a little bit. I don't want it to go away just yet. But uh, we're going to get rid of it. So, anywho, uh, Radio Assam family. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Muhammad Khalifa today. And we're going to be talking about something which is really... Uh, I think it's important for, uh, for, for Especially for practitioners For educational practitioners So uh, Dr. Muhammad Khalifa he is, an, uh, he is the Robert H. Beck Chair Of Ideas in Education uh, He's also an Associate Professor Of Organizational Leadership And Policy and Development At the University of Minnesota And he has written A really uh, Just a really thought provo- thought-provoking And a dynamic book Which is It is um, It is directed towards Educational practitioners It's it's directed towards Those who are in Positions of leadership And uh, the book is entitled Culturally Responsive School Leadership And it's going to be released By the Harvard Press And it should be coming out Within the next um, Next 45 days or so And one of the things That I noticed in the book uh, Before we uh, bring Dr. Muhammad on one of the things that I noticed, and, and first of all, I'll say that I'm, I'm not, well, I'm not technically an educational uh, practitioner. I taught, I taught school for a year, right? But education is something that I do, I do study, and plenty of educators in the family. Uh, so, but I, I, I study systems, and I see how uh, the book that he has presented, which um, he allowed me to look at the first chapter of it, it is really based on. Uh, recognizing uh, systemic uh, inequalities, systemic uh, factors, and how these things are playing out uh, within the school system, and to make sure that as uh, as leaders as as, le- as leaders in education that you are you are embedding yourself in the communities that you serve. Uh, and this is not always an easy easy conversation, but Dr. Muhammad is certainly one who is up to the task to uh, to take us through it. And I remind you that this is really for educational practitioners. Um, now, you may or may not be one, but I'm sure you're still going to find a lot of value in the conversation. So, um, do we have you on, uh, Dr. Mohammed? As-salamu alaykum.
1: Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Uh, that was a, a little error on my on my part i was talking to you before i had your mic uh before i had your mic up so <laughs> <No worries. laughs> so um yeah so educational leadership and the the title uh it, it speaks directly to uh a very pressing concern for uh many educators and, and parents as well uh who are aware of the effects um of just the, the formative uh impact that our schools have on our children Uh, communities and future could you tell us a bit first of all of what pushed you to uh to write this book culturally responsive school leadership
1: yeah this book has been in the making for probably going back 15 years i first started my journey into education as a science teacher on the east side of detroit and um later became a district level administrator i worked in high schools and middle schools and at that time i was actually socialized into believing um so I come from a socially conscious family. My parents converted to Islam in the 19 early 1970s. I was born into the nation, and, and so I, I had this kind of rich intellectual uh, tradition. And then I went to the University of Michigan, and I was very active on campus. And yet I still, when I started um, teaching in Detroit, I was actually socialized and um, sort of prompted into accepting deficit-oriented descriptions and discourses about my own people, you know, African Americans and other immigrant Muslims who, for a number of reasons only that I would later learn, um, seemed ostensibly they were disengaged from school mm. in Detroit. So, you know, we would have parent-teacher conferences and, you know, one or two parents out of 30 would show up and then when parents would show up, they seemed to be a little bit edgy. And so it was very easy for me to accept the poisonous descriptions of, of my people and to kind of say, yeah, well, they, they, they don't value education or they're angry or they're this or they're that, um, only to kind of read up on the history of Detroit with folks like Thomas Segrew and his history of Detroit and uh, Hardigan and other scholars who, have, who kind of wrote about how, you know, p- bodies and communities were ordered and or destroyed, such as Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. And so um, as I kind of, you know, continued my journey and I uh, was aiming and hoping to be the superintendent of Detroit, I was actually shadowing the superintendent at that time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and became a district-level administrator. I said, you know, there's, there's more to this story. And by, by just kind of learning how to do this project, this education project that I'm witnessing here better mm-hmm. or in a different kind of way... Um, I we really need radical changes. and I knew that as a classroom teacher, um, you can have emancipatory and liberatory pedagogical strategies within your classrooms. You mm-hmm. can, and I'm not discounting that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, but for sustained research for sustained for sustained um, reform to happen, you you really do have to um, engage the structures of schooling and policies around schooling. and so, that was sort of my entree um even to support those kind of educators that want to do that work i mean they burn out right and they need resources in order to do uh you know liberatory educational work and so i I knew that leadership was a pressing question and as i I kind of get deeper into my uh, phd program I, i i knew i was it was it was confirmed very firmly to me that um you know, leadership questions needed to be answered, and the literature largely talked about classroom-specific knowledges and strategies. And so that's kind of that's kind of what led me into into leadership.
0: So, when new teachers come into a a, a school culture, um, do they uh, do they inherit this view of uh, deficit models? Um, and my next, well, I guess the, another part of that is. How do these things go unnoticed? And yeah, well, I'll stop right there because there, there's another part. But I don't, I don't want to be too lengthy in the question.
1: Yeah, they do inherit structures, and if if teachers do, and, you know, I want to be very, very emphatic about this point. If teachers go into classrooms with the which you know, ninety-eight percent of teachers in you do have some liberatory programs out there. But if 90, and you have good professors everywhere, so, I mean, there are some exceptions to the rule. But in general, Mm -hmm. if you just go into your classroom as a beginning teacher with the tools that have been imparted by your college of education, you will reproduce oppressive structures on students in your classroom, especially if you have minoritized students in your classroom. Okay. They absolutely inherit... Disciplinary structures; they inherit structures that favor some students and make them more likely to um, encounter or um, uh, experience educational and academic success. Um, they inherit structures within the school, po- the way policies are written, they, um, the school cultures, discursively and materially, both uh, impact ha- the kind of experiences that students have, and so. You have studies coming out now that suggest that the brightest students, the students with the most uh, intellectual sort of advanced capacity and uh, intellectual prowess and all of that, that they're the ones that actually decide to leave school after the the kind of pressure that they encounter in schools. And so, and it's no mystery that that's happened. There was a, a gay study, I think it was 2011, that suggested that the number one reason that students... Um, Chose to leave school is is, is because they felt no one cared about them. Their 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 space at the school was not a humanizing space.
0: And that type of, uh, I'm sorry. So that type of that type of um, of of feeling, uh, to to think that you have nobody in your corner, that would obviously have an impact on uh, on a student's desire to make long range plans. Mm-hmm. Obviously, or in, or even to to feel invested in their own uh, education, or you know, to believe that there's an outcome that that would be favorable to to, the, to their lives.
1: Absolutely, and we're talking about not just individuals but communities because are community discourses and epistemologies and relationships to schools that can either be confirmed or can be um, challenged and reimagined by these these people who go into schools from these communities, these students I'm referring to, Mm -hmm. and their parents, by the way. But so even, I I found that even when you can find schools in which minoritized students, by minoritized, we don't have time to get into that term as much, but Mm -hmm. it's it's a term that suggests um, processes and histories at play, Mm -hmm. and it also suggests that these kids did not choose to be minority students but that they were sort of made to be minority students by this structure. Right. But as these uh, students, you know, come in school, they've heard things from their parents about the schools, right? A lot of their parents and their grandparents have gone to the same <laughs> schools. And so they, 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 it's either going to be confirmed or it's going to be uh, reaffirmed or codified in, in certain type of ways. And so, you know, these students, they enter schools and they have these experiences and they... Really don't. So so there was a 1995 study um, done by OK and Cusick in which they found that, um, and this was actually all white people in this particular study, and they found that school dropout was actually a solution for those white families. They were poor. Um, sort of lower SES white families, all-white staff, teachers, and they kind of found that, okay, look, for us it's better for us to just leave school because this kind of pressure and this kind of um, non-acceptance of our own community capital and stuff like that is just not working for us. So for them, the dropout actually was a solution. And so just imagine how much more so that's the case for um, low or even high SES, minoritized students who encounter these kind of violent spaces in schools, sometimes even physically violent. By the way, I'm not only talking at systemic violence and and sort of social and cultural and school climate, but I'm talking about physically. And mm. you know, and sometimes you know, with the police presence in schools and the, and the militarization of schools, and all of these things come to bear on how these students inter these students and their communities interpret the schools, and then end up saying, you know, well, maybe there's another way. I don't have to subject myself to this persistent pressure, this regime. You know, sometimes going back 10 years, you know, if a student has been encountering the same kind of uh, very hostile, and, and, and how we as educators think of school space and whether it's hostile or not is very different from how students and communities interpret a space, whether or not it's hostile. For us, it's, do you have the We think in our minds this whole false notion of equality. Do do we give the student every opportunity to learn? And, you know, students are looking at body language. They're looking at how policies are applied to some students and not other students. They're looking at what the policies are for all students. They're looking at how the teacher interacts or describes them. Whether or not they can see themselves and and the, what they're learning. And even if if it has some like non-authentic, um, uh, you know some non-authentic stories about their community mm-hmm. that sort of happen in a very structured type of way that, yeah, yeah, it's about me, but it doesn't really feel right. You know, whether they can see authentic knowledge about their communities and whether they have a say-so in that knowledge. And, you know, even students who are doing well, mm-hmm. like minoritized students that are doing well, what did they have to give up in order to do well in that space? And how so, are they feeling?
0: So are you, Are, are is there a... Is there an awareness from your experience that minoritized students are aware that they're being uh, that they are being judged or dealt with through a deficit model
1: oh yeah that's what that's and that's what i'm saying that's exactly my point These students exactly and their communities know exactly what's going on, but they've been told and to some extent I think that this is true that the way to get to Uh, individual success and into the university and the whole meritocratic myth and the whole meritocratic narratives about you work hard, you go to college, you can get a job. To some extent, that's true. That's the only uh, outlet that some communities have. It's not always the case. you got folks like Jay-Z and others who are billionaires now, likely, and who didn't do it through schooling. But by and large, it's either the MBA or it's rap, and they know that that's less than 0.01%. So they... They can interpret what's going on in schools, and they, and and despite the fact that they've been kind of told that you you know you really need to do schooling, it's just that the, the pressure is too immense, and so other narratives within the same communities might emerge, and that might seem more attractive to them, and it might be an athletic type of thing that they throw themselves at, or a music type of thing that they throw themselves at, or other things.
0: Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so uh, embedded or implied within this. Within I'm sorry, the title, can you speak up? Sure. So, embedded uh, and implied within the title itself, culturally responsive school leadership, um, it suggests that uh, that the leadership of the school has to be positioned. Well, I, I'll, I'll let you clarify clarify this, but uh, I'm I'm gathering that the leadership must be positioned within the community that it serves uh, and aware of the impact of the of the school space in helping to to elevate the community?
1: Absolutely. So, so you mentioned, uh, I'll mention a couple of things. Elevate the community is important because, as I was saying a little bit, uh, and I started to get into, even for the minoritized students that are performing well, mm-hmm. it's always an individual capitalist paradigm that, look, if you work hard, you, your family can get ahead, but it's never attached. I shouldn't say never. I know of a couple of schools. It's rarely attached to communities and how that success that individual success would lend itself to community empowerment and self-determination despite the fact that community empowerment and self-determination are very historic african-american practices Mm -hmm. and african practices and other minoritized student practices but also you're right It, it suggests that leaders so teachers you know one of the things that I argue in the book is that teachers need to go into the communities in a, in a non-exoticizing way, get and, and, and access, right, with the permission and with all of the cultural nuance necessary, access that indigenous knowledge and that cultural knowledge that are in these communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's difficult to do unless you have a leader who is, who is giving you something. Because, you know, teachers have families, too. Right. So, you know, a teacher, they work all day, They, you know, it's difficult to go from their work to another student's into community spaces when you got your own kids at home that need parenting, too, and then you are, they already work you very, very, you know, <laughs> intensely. <laughs> so, you know, that is a leadership structure question. So what does that mean? That means that school leaders need to create structures and use policy and resources that would allow a teacher somewhere between four and six days a year so that they can go into these communities and access that knowledge. And by the way, while you're accessing that knowledge, what is it that the community needs? What are their aspirations? What are their goals? And how can you understand that? How can you lend yourself to advocating for some of those goals as a teacher and or leader in a school? All of those kind of questions have been really not answered thoroughly in leadership literature, school leadership literature, and so that's kind of why I, I lent I try to lend it to the book. And, and, and in general, the mm-hmm. literature in this first chapter that you're kind of were talking about
2: mm-hmm.
1: kind of suggests that culturally responsive school leadership exists in some unique ways. Number one is this whole intellectual and critical self-reflection. like how, And in that, in that instance, instance, you ask yourself, how have I personally contributed to oppressive structures in my space and in my spaces. And then you have mm. a question of school climate. That's another aspect of culturally responsive leadership because the literature until now has really been talking about classroom-specific you know, instances. But let me ask you a question, Targ. like when you're at the lunchroom when mm. you were growing up or when you're on the bus and on the way to and on the way from school, does that, do those experiences not inform your perceptions of the school as well?
0: Of oh, course they do, absolutely.
1: right? So the first one is critical self-reflection. Then you have this whole thing of school climate. And then you have yourself as an African-American male or as an indigenous female or a Latinx or whatever. Um, you have whether or not those identities are accepted and honored and humanized in schools. And, can, and, and then you have this whole community engagement piece. So those are kind of like the four um, areas in general. But then you have to get to the nuts and bolts of leadership. So within school leadership, there's an entire massive corpus of literature on instructional leadership. So how can a principal be an instructional leader? And that literature, unfortunately, in the past has been whitewashed. Hmm. In other words, it's like two plus two is four. There's no context to it. It's no, and that's, that's, that's unfortunate. So one of the things I try to do in the book is address, okay, now, hold on. yeah, let's do instructional leadership. In other words, how can a school leader inform teachers' practice that w- teaching practice that would lead to uh, beneficial outcomes in student learning that 's true. We do need to do that i 'm not discounting that, but how can you do that in a humanizing way toward minoritized students because it's been very dehumanized in the past, and let 's not leave that history out and The same thing is true for other types of leadership that I take up in the book you know. So.
0: There's a, there is um, a term that you use uh, in this first chapter, and uh, it, it really caught my attention. As a matter of fact, I think it was before the first chapter. I think it was just in the introduction, uh, and it was about it says, staying in a space of critique. Um, talk Can about you say not, that just a little bit louder? Sure. talked about, um, you mentioned about not staying in a space of, uh, cri- of critique. Yeah. Um, could you elaborate a, l- a little bit on, on that?
1: Sure, sure. This is something I think that's actually very relevant for your Muslim uh, listeners as well uh, because essentially what I was trying to take up in that part of the book was that um, you find all of these critical theories, people who are falling in love with, and rightfully so, with things like critical race theory and uh, decolonizing literature and lat-crit and other just types of... uh, Theories that are used to critique oppressive structures in society and in schools, and that kind of literature is immensely valuable. But the problem is is that, well, the problem is multifaceted. Number one, there are indigenous knowledges that don't have anything to, well, that have little to do, much less to do with oppressive structures. So in other words, if you go deep enough into the African American community, despite all of the systems of white supremacy and um, community oppression and stuff like that, you do find local knowledge that emerged. And this is in, a, this is in what, what one scholar, uh, William White, would call the middle ground or of uh, a, a, a contested hybridized space like America,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you have these indigenous knowledges on the bottom, and you have these white knowledges up top and how they kind of interact and come out to something completely new that no strictly black space or white space is ever seen. But what I'm arguing in that and throughout the book is that, look, hold on a second now, Uh, we cannot just merely critique systems of oppression. And this is something that, unfortunately, I see many students across campuses doing. And instead of finding actual decolonizing practices or indigenous practices of leadership from this part of the world or from that part of the world, or even in your part of the world, like what are the community knowledges that can be brought to bear? They don't do that. They just critique anti-racism, which we need, Afro-pessimism, which we need decolonization from an anti-colonial perspective, which we need. We need all of that. Okay, And, And so the other thing that I'll just say very briefly, and it's sort of tangential, so I won't go into it deeply, is that this in both this indigenous knowledge and this decolonial knowledge can be traced back to early parts of our muslim intellectual history when you had folks from our history debating with folks from europe but presenting an alternative islamic epistemological view Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and i i just think that it's we we lose so much yes sure the critique is needed we have to level critiques at any... I mean, we're ordered to do that in, uh, by Almighty God, we believe,
2: right.
1: to, to stand up against any type of oppression, right. racial, gender, um, uh, you know, any kind of oppression that we encounter. But at the same time, I think we lose so much when we only critique those structures and we don't actually look at what type of structures might be... What did the indigenous people here do? Right. What mm-hmm. what do people on the continent do? How how might knowledge that that we as a people here under siege for 400 years developed, whether it be in the nation of Islam or these are, these indigenous knowledge that kind of emerged? What do they do? How do they lead? And how can we bring that to bear in schools? I'm not even talking about religious knowledge as much as epistemological stances that, let me that ask, kind of exist in these communities. L-
0: l- let me ask this um, because in this space of critique. Uh, and and there are uh, there are quite a few folks who are engaged in that. That is their the full time. Um, that is their full time endeavor. It is to right. critique the system, uh, and and the system, as as you mentioned, it is worthy of being critiqued. Um, but looking at the system that that uh, that is uh, that is undergirded or, or supported by the educational system, in particular, if we're talking about education. Um, that is supported by it. Is there an effort to or uh, to, to redirect? I shouldn't say redirect because I think what, what you're doing and, and others are doing in, in calling for uh, different practices to take place, different awarenesses that can shift um, that can shift the, uh, the, the, the practice and, and shift outcomes. Um, but, I'm, but I'm thinking, is there an aversion overall? in uh from educators uh and, and those who are who are studying the educational system who are not in the quote unquote the minority uh box. Is there an aversion for them to take on the system that was originally at least in a public education sense that was uh rooted in basically producing people that could be managed, you know, could fit into the uh to this uh burgeoning industrial uh revolution Uh, mass production and and things of that nature. Uh, Do you think people are averse to changing how the system functions to support communities as opposed to the system, or do you think these are things that don't necessarily have to work in opposition of one another? I hope that's clear.
1: Well, I I think that that depends on a number of things. I, I, I do think that there is a general... Aversion to it, yeah, I would, I would, I would say so, because it, you know, in order for schooling to be done in a, in, in a humanizing and masturbatory way, you really have to question yourself deeply. And so I, I, I work in districts a lot, as you know. Mm-hmm. So I work with superintendents and principals and and, and even teachers sometimes, um, actually a lot of the time. And when I go there. The, that that first part of critical self-reflection that we have to really focus on before we begin doing any of this other work because you, have to, you kind of have to loosen folk up and let them know um, or discuss and, and come to understand their own situatedness in these structures well that requires you to be a, a bit critical of your practice and how you've contributed to certain things and that's that that's difficult we you know, you know i i had to spend sometimes a day or two days with the district for us to really go deep enough in some of those spaces um in order for us to begin to even understand that there is an aversion hmm. so yeah i do think that that's the case but i'm i i i, I alluded to it a short while ago Target. there there are some schools that are really trying to do things very very differently i visited some schools in denver Um, A good friend of mine has a school up in the Bay now. There's a a school that started in Detroit right around the time I left before coming here to Minnesota. And so there are some some, some institutions that are trying to do things radically different. But, you you know, since these particular educators and these leaders are trained in institutions of higher education that don't get a whole lot about what you and I are talking about, of course, when this black guy, this big black Muslim guy walks through the door, it's like, what, what, what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. And so it it becomes a difficult difficult pill to swallow and for people to accept that they've you know that they've played a role in continuing the marginalization not just of black bodies within your school, but the marginalization of their knowledge, their um their cultural richness, and their entire communities. So yes, I think that's difficult for anybody to kind of fess up to. I think that it depends on state. It depends on the, the discourses of even uh, political leaders in particular spaces. I think it, it's heavily reliant on whether it's an urban space versus um mixed-race space versus a strictly rural space. I've had all of these people in my classrooms. and. They have very different orientations and understandings of the world. So, if you're from outstate Minnesota, you're much less likely to be willing to engage these kind of discourses than somebody who's in the Twin Cities and who might have noticed all of the Somali boys or all of the, you know, uh, Latino females being pushed out of their uh, out of their uh, schools and their classes. So, a lot of things go into whether or not people are willing to acknowledge and how averse they are to it.
0: Mm. Okay, okay. You know what, Uh, Radio Slam family, we're going to take a short break right now. We are talking with Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. He is the author of Culturally Responsive School Leadership, uh, and it is going to be released by Harvard Press sometime uh, this summer, coming up. Uh, But we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back in just a moment.
3: As a blessed month of Ramadan approaches and we ask Allah for His mercy and favor, we ask that you not only keep SoundVision in your du'a but that you also support it financially. Programs like Adam's World, Radio Islam, media trainings, the Crisis Text Line, and the Weekend School Teachers Institute are made possible by the support of listeners like you. Remember, donations made to SoundVision are tax-deductible as well as zakat eligible. We appreciate your continued support and urge you to visit www.soundvision.com today. Click on the Give button and donate. Jazakallah khair. Hey America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America Nationwide Network of Food Banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America on your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital.
0: You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call one eight six six no attacks Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many.
3: I feel like a fish with no water.
0: Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we are streaming at www.wcev1450.com. Remember, you can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages. On Twitter, Instagram, and, and Facebook, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And that's the same handle you'll use to... Catch up on all those episodes you may have missed or you want to revisit. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. Uh, Today, our guest is Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. He is the Robert H. Beck Chair of Ideas and Education, Associate Professor of Organizational Leadership and Policy Development at the University of Minnesota. And we have been talking about his upcoming, soon to be released uh, book, Cultural Responsive School Leadership. Being released by Harvard Press. And uh, as I said, it is due for a summer release. So we are back at it. alaikum.
1: Wa alaikum, salam wa rahmatullah.
0: So, um, yeah, so before we uh, before we went to the break, we were talking about how, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, some of the aversion uh, that folks have on in taking on uh, the system. Uh, but one of the things I must mention that you have outlined in just the, just the tidbit that I was able to look at um is the effect the, the external effects um uh, the, uh policy policy effects of uh, whether they be federal or state um and e- you've outlined some of those things how they have affected not necessarily the the leadership but the communities in which these uh school leadership are are, are placed in and how they uh they impact their um they impact their ability, their ability to lead and and relate. Um, are these things? Are these factors? Do you find them to be universally accepted or considered? Uh, and to to give to give name to one of them, uh, we're talking about the rise of the uh, prison industrial complex. Uh, not to mention all the underlying factors that contribute to its uh, to its existence. But are these things that are looked at, recognized, and talked about? among school leaders that you have been in contact with?
2: <laughs>
1: no, actually. In fact, they're they're almost routinely ignored, and several things are going on with that. Um, number one, school leaders, <clears throat> unfortunately, are taught to be post racial and post-political. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in other words, they're taught to not take up controversial issues where, in reality, minoritized communities are looking just for leadership from them on those issues. Mm-hmm. And so in uh, Black Bottom in Detroit, and Paradise Valley, too. Um, Detroit once boasted the largest black middle class in the country. Uh, black folks were coming up from the south. They were doing very well. and They were, had plant jobs. Um, their communities, there, their their stores, their theaters, they, they it really rivaled. In fact, according to some historians, was much better than Harlem, uh, New York. And all of the, you know, jazz artists and the personalities will come through there and spend a lot of time <clears throat> in Black Bottom. And what happened was that several things happened in Detroit, and I'm just using Detroit as a case study to frame your question,
2: sure.
1: um, is first of all, deindustrialization started to happen in Detroit. So they started to um, move jobs out of the city and into white spaces and in, in, in suburbs of rural uh, America, uh... also the kinds of occupational discrimination and housing discrimination that Detroit, black Detroiters faced. They would come back from World War II and from other wars hoping to use the GI Bill. And we all know that the number one wealth building uh, measure and way that Americans build wealth is through housing. You, know, you buy a house, you save one for 30 years, you leave it to your children, and they have some money to start their lives with. And that was really denied wholesale denied of black people in places like Detroit and in other places around the country. I know Detroit is just not it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then a lot of people don't understand that when we said, okay, fine, you want to leave us in the South and, and have these kind of conditions, we come up north, we build something. We finally built Black Bottom. We finally built Tulsa. We finally built Paradise Valley, Charlotte, which is a neighborhood. Uh, I'm sorry, Brooklyn, which is a neighborhood in Charlotte, and other even parts of, of throughout America. You forced us into these spaces, you redlined our housing, you left us the worst type of housing, we finally made something of it, and then after all of that, you come and you take eminent domain and you run an airport or you run an expressway and completely obliterate. And sometimes you just, in some instances, you just get mad Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: just (laughs) raise the town and burn it to the ground. So all of these things come to bear in schoolings and how communities, so first of all, Black people, Latino people, and definitely Indigenous people have a particular way that they see all official institutions, including schools. Right? Uh-huh. Schools are not okay. This is these how official. You know, there was a, a very popular saying by, it's attributed to General Pratt, and he absolutely said it, which was "kill the Indian and save the man." So for Indigenous communities, schools were used to completely well, rinse out and strip away any type of indigeneity because they were said to be savages that could be cured, whereas black people were subhuman. That's another discussion. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So so, so absolutely these leaders in almost every school that I've entered either as an employee or as a researcher or as a consultant that was trying to make things better, almost none of them, almost none of them are aware of these histories Mm -hmm. and about how they represent not the community side but the other side of the equation so can you imagine going into a school where these you know principals or teachers saying you know we have an achievement gap right starting all the way up there we have an achievement gap our white students are performing 20 or 30 points more in math and reading blah 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 than the black students and latino and indigenous students and then For you wanting to, for someone like me to come in and just simply ignore and whitewash or just completely not mention all of these contextual factors that you and I are talking about, Mm Tariq, and go straight to, okay, uh, why don't you do 20 more problems, and then if you do those problems, then the kids will perform better on the test. It's not going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. It's not going to happen. That that never will happen. And in fact, teachers and administrators, they actually have the tools, they have the know-how, the technical knowledge to get done some of this culturally responsive work that we're talking about, but they don't have the knowledge to connect the dots with the community, those community histories and the community knowledges and to the, the anti-hegemonizing uh, and colonial schooling and all of that kind of stuff. They just don't, they're not connecting the dots with that, with some of those other things. So,
0: You mentioned the hmm. Uh, our educational history um i guess as a country when it came into contact with the indigenous peoples the native americans and is that something that because uh, because when you said it i immediately thought of uh, there was a book i read not too long ago by um craig stephen wilder and it was i think it's called ivy ivy was it ivy and ebony um but but the whole crux of it was it it, it was about the uh educational system related to uh, well specifically related to the Ivy League schools and their their contact with uh native peoples uh through their educational systems doing exactly what you talked about um kill was it kill the uh kill the indian save the man was that the, was that the phrase yeah yeah, yeah yeah and that was pretty much it creating missionaries um but it was it was a it was a a terrible uh it was it was a terrible uh situation uh and and, an accounting uh do you think and i only bring this up just to ask this are you from from your experience are when the folks you talk to are they aware of the history of education in the united states and how it has? absolutely not okay now i think
1: yeah no absolutely not and that that is a very brutal expression of things that have been going on for centuries. Actually, um, mm-hmm. I think that this discussion is not traced back to Jim Crow mm-hmm. or even um, enslavement of Africans in this in this land. I think it goes even beyond that. And when the systems of encomienda popped up in Spain and Portugal after the the Qu- Christian monarchs retook Andalusia or southern Spain and and, um, and Portugal in which uh, they, unlike the, unlike the Muslims and the Berbers that had preceded them in, in, that, in, the, in that part of the world, um, that had sort of a system of unity but did not necessarily stress uniformity. So if you were Jewish living in uh, Andalusia and Spain, mm-hmm. you could have the Torah uh, and, and the, um, the um, Talmudic law on you and your community. So if you were to take something or steal something or something like that or go through a divorce or whatever, you wouldn't go to a Muslim judge. You would go to a rabbi. All right. And the same was true with any other faith that existed. Yet when the Christians retook that, that land, they said, no, this is the only law, the Christian law. They burned women to the stake. They killed Muslims and Jews and any, any other, dissent, even other Christians for that matter, anybody who represented dissent. Either had to conform or they were killed or they were excommunicated and so what happened was that if coming from this era, all types of knowledge you had immense intellectual uh, knowledge uh, Ramon Grasfugel talks about this and other decolonial scholars that you had on the upwards of five hundred million to a billion books in Andalusia, whereas in all of white Western Christian Europe, you had maybe a thousand books of all of Europe. Mm-hmm and the first universities in the world and uh, traditions of the department chair and the cap and gown and all of these kind of things coming out of that very rich history at that time. And then instead of embracing it, they appropriated what what knowledge they wanted, and the rest of it was burned. The, the books were burned and the knowledges were, were burned. And so that kind of and, – and, and, and people were depicted – there was a debate between – a couple of folks, Superveda and De La Casas, about how we're treating these indigenous people and in these Moors, mm-hmm. and it was argued that okay, these people don't have a god because they don't have a religion. They don't have a religion. They don't have a god. They don't have a god. They don't have a soul. Versus another uh, line of argument, which was no, they they're actually they're people. They're they're not subhuman, so we can't dehumanize them. But 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 um, they're just savages. So we have to clean. We have to desavagize them. Mm. We have to detribalize them, right. and so this type of stripping away of everything that you know that we saw done on the African slaves on, uh, when they were brought here, what well, we saw it done to the indigenous people, or they tried it on the indigenous people, they, thank God they were not successful. Mm-hmm. But this kind of this kind of impulse exists in schools, of course, absolutely, if that's what your question is, mm-hmm. because you can still see how teachers' shame and guilt. In some instances, just put you out. You're too loud. You're you're a loud black girl. There are folks who have written about that. You're an aggressive black boy. There are folks who are writing writing and who have written about that, about how any type, these impulses, any type of um, indigeneity or way of being that these people bring into schools are immediately smashed out.
2: Right.
1: And so um, we've been party to that. We've been made to feel uncomfortable by loud black, even black folks. Yeah. Are, been, you know, are, are expecting other black students. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'm very clear about mm. and I'm unapologetic about is that no person of color gets a pass. I don't care who you are. <laughs> you don't get a pass. If you're a white supremacist that wears black skin, then that's, just, that's what you are. Right. And so we've even been taught some black folk and some brown folk and some indigenous people to embrace these Western epistemological and behavioral and, um, you know, Educational ways of being, yeah, and we have to resist that as, as people of color as well. And so, yes, this impulse to rinse out and to fleece out any type of knowledge, and not just conscious knowledge, but subconscious ways, is throughout almost every school that I've ever entered.
0: There is there is something I want to go back to, uh, and that is, do you think that it is? Um that it is possible or or favorable to have this idea in the school to have unity without necessarily stressing uniformity, um, where we can have a, a diverse uh, representation not not only not only within the uh, the student body but reflected within the school leadership as well, where where there can be uh, multiple um, uh, just just different. Uh, expressions whether they be uh, reflecting different cultural norms um, is that something that we should look to see in our schools that that should be one of the one of the goals yeah that's
1: that's certainly one of the goals absolutely among the others that I mentioned earlier, which is that educators are being critically self reflective about how they're reproducing oppression sure about how how in um, community engagement happens about how um, Instruction. So, so in other words, when we do this work, we have to be very clear that we're not just talking about doing schooling as we've always done it. And then, by the way, let's be reflective about anti-oppressive work or about racism. That's not what we're arguing here. What what I'm saying is that that and that's how it's been done in the past. Mm -hmm. But what I'm actually arguing is that all of this anti-oppressive work and all of this culturally responsive work that has to lay over top of every aspect of schooling. Mm. So it can't be, oh, this is how we're going to do schooling, and uh, by the way, racism, let's talk about racism for a day or two. Or, by the way, let's talk about anti oppression let's talk about liberation and community empowerment separately from schooling. No, I'm saying that as you come up with the school policies and the school forms for intake for special education or for discipline
2: mm-hmm. and how
1: you determine uh and how you teach the courses and how you write lesson plans and how you observe teachers and all of these aspects of schooling the nuts and bolts you know all aspects of school leadership as well as school instruction as well as the office the way that office staff interact with community members for example the way that grounds are upkept the art in the school, the way music classes, all of the instructional pieces of it, of course,
2: mm-hmm.
1: all has to reflect the people that you serve. So if you've got a, a grouchy office staff person who is greeting all of your Hmong or your South Asian families when they come in, they don't have anybody that can speak the language, but as I said, you know, these students are just brilliant, man. They can, they can pick up. If you're office staff people are acting like they don't want people from their community to come in, and it's a burden every time they come in the door. Mm-hmm. They, they stop coming. Right. And so, um, yeah, so.
0: Well, let, let me ask. Let me, let me throw this on there, right, because you mentioned, uh, our, I mean, everything in the school, it, it, should be, it should be informed by the community that it sits in, right? Right. So what happens when, uh, and I guess this is a part of doing that introspection, Right. But what happens when you have uh, leadership, when you have teachers who do not find value, who do not feel that the communities that they are situated in, and the uh, student that the, the students that they are serving, they don't feel that there is uh, a valuable knowledge. They don't feel that these communities are repositories of, um, of, of worthwhile experiences uh, that can help to elevate and, and, and inform their uh, instruction. And just just the the interactions that they're having with the with these students
1: yeah and and so target what you're asking is exactly why we many of us are engaged in this work that's why I wrote the book, that's <laughs> why I do the kind of work I do yeah. because what you're saying is not a anom- it's not an anomaly
2: mm-hmm. it's the norm right
1: it's the norm, most people don't see the value, and even when they're told they don't know how to access that value, mm-hmm. and so that's why we've been so busy you know going around trying to help people understand. How to do this work now? <clears throat> I do want to say one other thing too.
2: Sure.
1: I was I, when I go to districts, I'm often checked by people who have uh, you know either direct or loose affiliations with unions or you know everybody believes that you deserve a redemptive pathway. And I'll take this up later in the book. I don't think that you know, we, we didn't have a chance to talk about that part. Mm-hmm. But I'll take this up in later chapters in the book. And, and the question is, does everybody deserve a pathway, a teacher I'm talking about, a pathway to become better, mm. to show that you can teach kids like this? And I think that, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it, but in general I feel that everybody deserves a redemptive pathway. Okay. But after two or three years, if you're not willing to, and you're not demonstrating, it has to be not demonstrable, if you're not demonstrating that you can engage and serve people like this. And I, I say this with great uh, concern to some of my peers and friends, and to some great counter, you need to be removed from the school. Mm. I mean, To me, I, I, I compare it to police officers going around terrorizing communities, you know, policing only certain types of communities, okay. roughing kids up, cursing them out, talking to them like they're animals. Right. You come, you do the emancipatory training, liberatory training with the police officers. You got to respect community, learn the community knowledge, your community-based policing, blah blah blah. Yet, and still, next month the police officer does it again. It's continuing with that pattern of behavior. Then so you give them another chance. I mean, you don't keep people around like that, right? You don't. Yeah, you know, yes, that person's livelihood is important, but do you think it's more important than the lives of the people that they are supposed to be serving? Not, I mean You know, so if you – now, one of the reasons – one of the things – I think I'll leave this with you. One of the things that I argue throughout the book is that the leaders and teachers need to not just be aware and use those knowledges. They need to advocate this role of advocacy for community-based goals and community – Self determination. So if you find ICE raiding schools, like what they've done here in Minnesota and in other parts of the country, right. like, you know, you just drop your baby off at school, you show up at the school, and you arrest these people in front of their children. Mm-hmm. And in some instances, you take kids even. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so what I'm saying is that if we cannot. Learn as school leaders that that is what's important to that community that I'm serving, and then advocate and be political. You, you, I mean, as an administrator, you could be fired any You know, your lifespan is two or three years, right? As in a superintendent, I mean, you may be fired anyway. Stand for something, mm-hmm. and if you're not willing to go and find out, okay, there's joblessness in this community, there's a spiking HIV or heroin or this or that in this community, and take that up as an issue, you will never ever earn the trust the credibility and the rapport from that community and you can never make any changes in the school. Community work leads to positive school work not the other way around and so um, that's one of the things I try to take up in the book as well and try to help people understand that you can't be political in this space, man. I mean there's no uh, post-political or anti-political stances when it comes to oppression, right?
0: Right, and that definitely goes back to um, I believe I recall reading this Um, Talking about the history of the of education in the African-American community and how the 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 the, the principal in in the black school was was looked at as the the the, the de facto um, representative for education and economics and, you know, and and so on. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I I definitely I definitely can appreciate that point. Um, And I I just have to say thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us. And oh, I'm, absolutely. My yeah, pleasure. We're definitely looking forward to, uh, to getting the book uh, upon its release, Culturally Responsive School Leadership. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yes. And it
1: is, it is directed toward practitioners. So I do have some more scholarly works out there, but this one I've, I wrote specifically with the mind of practitioners, yes. that they would have something in their hands that they could go and serve communities better. So I hope that uh, um, that both practitioners and scholars alike read it and and. Um, Help us do this work.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I'm certain it will, and uh, inshallah, we'll find a uh, great benefit in it. Keep uh, doing, you know, keep doing the great work that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation and the time.
0: All right. Okay. All right, Radio Islam family, we have come to the close of another show, another episode. Uh, we thank you for tuning in. Hope that you found benefit in it. Um, I am your host and producer and engineer. Um, we want to thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. And we also want to thank our executive producer Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Inc. Uh, with that. We look forward to joining you again tomorrow night. So everyone, have a uh, have a safe evening. We're going to leave you as we greeted you. alaykum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.
2: Thank you.